Folks, Jack Spirico here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 554 of the Survival Podcast. It is November 18th, 2010. Do you realize that this time next week we will be sitting down to a great big table full of turkey, gravy, and potatoes? At least if that's your thing, you will. Yep, Thanksgiving is next week. We'll be taking our annual survivalist look at Thanksgiving the day before Thanksgiving. And I tell you what, folks, Thanksgiving, no survival podcast. Black Friday, no survival podcast. I'm taking those days off, spending them with the family the way I do every year. I suggest you do the same, but we will have shows right through Wednesday next week. Today's show is going to be a listener call-in show. I'm doing this uh, back-to-back, a call-in show today, a call-in show tomorrow. I may do one Tuesday next week or Monday next week because... I realized I've got calls going back a month now, and it's from, we're going into the holidays, we're going to have a backup there, we did the listener show, uh, 550 with people calling in, that wasn't the call and answer show, so that's backed this up, plus a high volume of calls, and I feel like if you call in, uh, I should try to get you an answer within a couple, three weeks, and as we start to go beyond that backlog, I'll double up on these shows. So that's what I'm doing today because I, you guys are important to me. And if you take your time, you call and ask me a question. If there's any way I can answer it, I will. That said, if you have an older call and you haven't heard yourself on the show yet and you're wondering what's going on, there's one of two major possibilities. One, you've called in with a question that is deeper than a call-in show and you've given me a great idea and I'm going to do an entire show on it. Uh, actually, there's three. Two, um, you're getting pushed off one week, and you're going to be on like the next one because I need to do some research into your call beyond what I can just do uh, the morning when I go through and screen the calls. This stuff, I screened this stuff an hour ago, so that's how long I have to prepare for this entire show. Sometimes you ask a question where I go, huh, that's a good one, but I don't have an immediate answer, and I have to defer that to the next week. The last one is you've done something like you've called in from your uh, car with the windows down to an 80 miles an hour, and I couldn't hear what you were saying, so I deleted your call. It's probably one of those three. I do try to answer everybody, and I try to take them in the order they come in. You want to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK, we'll get you on the air. Real quick through the housekeeping today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Western Botanicals. Dr. Kyle Christensen over there does a good job of making sure that they have a supply of just about every herbal component you could possibly want to use for anything uh, that would be available anywhere in the United States and in some cases might be very difficult to find anywhere. Uh, their herbal catalog is exhaustive, and that's for raw herbs. And if you want stuff that's already put together and made into preparations for you, they have that too. The other thing they have is an extensive knowledge database and an extensive knowledge uh, available to you. If you are like dealing with something and you want to use an herbal solution to it, pick the phone up and call them and they will tell you what to do, including, you know what, in this case, maybe you need to go to a regular doctor. Or you need to go to a regular doctor and use this as an adjunct. Or no, you don't need 
traditional medicine. You can use this, and here's what to do, but here's to watch out for. But they'll be honest with you. They won't sell you snake oil. I guess that's my real point. That's why they're a sponsor on the show. That's why they should be your first stop for any of your herbal needs, whether you want information or product itself. Next up today is Common Sense Prep. Common Sense Prep has all the preps that you need to be prepared for what's going to go on in the world, whether it's uh, from the mundane to the insane, but in a common sense format. Check out Common Sense Prep. Remember, if you're in the MSB, they give you uh, 15% off all of their Paladin Press books and DVDs. Those are an extensive library of some really cool stuff, so check those out. Um, Next up, I want to remind you guys to check out our gear shop. And uh, one of the new things we have in the gear shop are M3 medic bags with uh, TSP patches on them. Just did a video on that, three other videos yesterday. I'm going to knock out a video today on the new Berkey system that I have in the house for a couple months now. Um, I'm going to try to get all those videos up in the next week or two. Uh, shooting them is one thing, getting them edited, rolled out, and uploaded is another. So uh, lots of videos coming, so subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out the M3 medic bag, though. That one is just awesome. Um, last but not least, I want to remind you guys about the contest we did with John Willis. We gave away six Cobra belts on Tuesday. We're giving away six tomorrow, so make sure you tune in quickly, you know, early tomorrow. Um, one thing about the contest days, a lot of you guys slam the server, um, trying to get the show early, and you might experience some server timeouts or some delays in downloads or something. It's just a big spike on, on a contest day, just so you know. Um, the winners from Tuesday, you don't even know who you are yet except one of you. Uh, I had to talk to John about how we were going to do this. I'll be getting in touch with you guys today after today's show, and so you may have won and not know it from Tuesday. Uh, I will ask this of you. If you won Tuesday, please don't play again on Friday. Because uh, if you do come up, I'm just going to skip you because I don't think it's fair to give away two belts to one person. One last contest. I'm giving away four free uh, MSB memberships to help Nick over at Save Our Skills. Uh, you just go to SaveOurSkills.com and check like probably the second or third post on the sh on there today. And uh, I'll put a direct link to that post. And all you got to do is join the Save Our Skills email alert list. And uh, Nick's going to give away four uh, MSB memberships. And he is also going to give away a Leatherman Skeletool uh, to the person that wins the first MSB membership. So that's $200 plus whatever a Skeletool is worth, probably $250 bucks worth of stuff being given away at SaverSkills.com. Check that out. Last but not least, totally last but not least, consider joining the MSB. That's the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available to only to members. And you support our show at uh, $0.20 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and take the first call. Well, Jack, the other night we got hit by a huge windstorm, knocked out power and whatnot in a lot of our area. And now that I've moved to a slightly more rural um, zone, it takes a, a tad longer to get the electricity on. Uh, rather than an hour or two later having power, it was early in the next morning. Um, also, we now have a well, and I never knew until my wife told me, you can't flush the toilets when you have a well and no power. Um, while putting solar panels and whatnot are on the agenda for the future. Right now we're mostly focusing on just fixing up the other aspects of the house that are more necessary, better heating system, et cetera, et cetera. So um, my daughter flushed the toilet by accident, and um, we wound up with no water in the sink. However, a while back I had installed a reverse osmosis filter and had decided to go with the larger holding tank, And lo and behold, while we didn't have water for the toilets with sinks, we did have several gallons of drinking water, which was really nice to kind of see one little prepper thing I had done 
pay off in an extra way. Um, definitely learned a lot, um, but it was kind of mixed. I had just bought some rechargeable flashlight mounts, kind of as you've talked about. I used to have one. They have some new ones now that actually don't plug in. They use uh, conductive charging. They're LED. They work much better than the old ones I used to have. And so we had our flashlights. Um, there's a lot to be desired. I sit there going, man, I have an electric stove. Can't cook. Um, so definitely looking forward to switching to propane down the road. Uh, great learning experience. A little boring at times, but then we, you know, kind of just did a little bit of fun stuff. Um, that's just all. Just wanted to give you an Well, we got a lot going on there. Let's see what I can say in response to it. Number one, I'm glad you were prepped, and I'm glad you were ready for the power to go out because that's what happens. And what you'll find is there's a lot of great things about rural living. But the further you move out, the further things like, you know, you're lower on the food chain become when it comes to restoring services. And it's not anything against the rural environment. But let's say I am, you know, an engineer at a power facility. And I've had something go on and it's knocked power out. And I have to come up with a systematic way to restore power. And I have something that I can put the primary forces on that's going to restore power to 20,000 people. And then I have something, and this is simplified, but then I have something that's going to restore power to 10,000. And then I have something that's going to restore power to 5,000. And then I have something that's going to restore power to 500. How am I going to prioritize that? Am I going to start looking at people's tax brackets and things like that? No. I mean, if I'm doing my job the right way, I'm just going to do it on raw numbers. You get the most amount of people up as quickly as possible. And that's the best that they can do. And you're going to deal with that. Now, the well with the power out, here's an interesting thing. The reason you couldn't flush the toilet uh, is because you didn't have any water pressure. And as soon as you used whatever you had, the pump lost its prime, stopped pushing water up. And it didn't matter your little girl flushed the toilet. She's not the one that made the water go away. If you would have turned the sink on, it would have ran for a little bit, and it would have been gone too. Um, because no power with a well with an electric pump, no water pressure. Now, you can flush toilets. If you have a large supply of water, let's say rain catchment system or what have you, if you have a well, odds are you also have something called a septic tank. You don't have a commercial uh, city sewer, so you're not worried about whether or not that system's going to back up because you just have a drain field, a leach field. So you take a bucket of water from your rain catch system, you put it in the back tank of your toilet, and uh, you flush it. A more efficient way to do it, and if you've done the number two instead of number one, this can be a little bit gross, but pour it directly into the bowl until it gives enough to give a flush. And that way you'll only use as much as is necessary to flush whatever's in there. Uh, so just something to deal with there if you're a well owner. Uh, you can do that in the city too. The problem is it's for the major outage uh, with water and sewer and electricity out at the same time, the sewers can eventually back up, and if everybody does, it accelerates that. But if you're in the country and you have your own septic system, no problem at all to do that. On the rechargeable lights, conductive charging LED rechargeable lights. Don't know anything about them. Going to have to look them up. Thanks for that tip. If anybody's been using these things, you want to give me a link in the show notes today in the comments section. I'd love to see it. Um, on the propane, um, I'll tell you what, I think that's probably the best thing for anybody out in the country, especially with um, with heating issues. But I'm going to save on the heating component of that uh, for the next question, which did come in as the absolute next caller. I'll tell you guys, the way you guys come in back-to-back uh, -back on top of each other is something. But good to hear from a listener as to what he's doing. You know, and just here's a perfect example of not a major catastrophe going on, but... What I would say to people that say, why do we do all this stuff, that power outage could have been a week. 
and there's a lot more to be done, and I like the order that, that he's going in. Now, on the, the, the solar, I'll tell you what, if you have a well, one of the very first solar projects you can do is putting in enough power to run your well. Uh, and have, even if it's a manual bypass where you have to go out to the well house and basically disconnect it from the power main and go into a battery backup system that kind of lives out there, uh, and maybe does something simple in that meantime, like running, uh, lights. And maybe it's not a system even with enough power to run your well continuously for taking big baths and big showers, but at least you can draw from it and get some basic power run into the house. And maybe you have to control how much you use. This is what we did. It was one of the very first things that we decided needed to have redundancy in it, uh, because we went up there and, uh, we did without, a, we did without water. We did without water two times. One was when a, uh, lightning strike had hit the ground while we weren't there and burned out a part. And we, when we, we saw what the part was, and it wasn't very expensive, it wasn't really hard to replace, but we had to call somebody to do it because we didn't know how to do it. And uh, we bought a second part from him, so if that part goes out, we know how to replace it now. And um, the other time we did without power was during a, or without water, was during a power outage for the exact same reason. And I thought, um, even though we had kind of a way we could put a manual pump on there, we'd set that up for long-term shit at the fan, I decided it was the time to go ahead and put some power redundancy in up there. And it doesn't take a lot of power to run a well pump. It takes a tremendous amount of power to run a well pump for a long time. But to be able to run it on and off for just getting water to the house uh, doesn't take but a couple car batteries and about 100 watts of solar. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call, and you'll see why I held off on the heating stuff. Hey, Jack. This is Nelson in Virginia. I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about alternative forms of heat like... Uh, Coal-burning stoves, wood stoves, pellet stoves. What do you recommend uh, for that uh, kind of heat uh, that really wouldn't require, you know, power or uh, electricity? Also, could you uh, give out some recommendations on specific stoves, manufacturers, and that kind of thing for uh, small to medium-sized stoves? Thank you for your time. Have a good day. Now, let me do what I can for you there. Um, first of all, this is why I held off on the heating with propane, because my first recommendation to anybody that's worried about long-term sustainability with heating would be to consider putting in some propane heating uh, uh, sources, whether it be a full system that runs on propane uh, or, or just even some basically what would amount to uh, permanently affixed propane-based space heaters, which is probably a great backup way to do this. Something I'm definitely looking at doing at long term up at the uh, at the bug out location, soon to be our primary residence. Uh, most of the hunting camps that I've been to, they pretty much use that. They have a little small propane space heater. Doesn't really require any electricity at all to run those. And even places that have electricity, that's still what they choose to use. And I'm talking about you know professional guided operations on some hunts I've been on. That's always what I've seen. It's always worked well. It's always been sufficient to uh, provide enough heat to common areas and sleeping areas and things like that. So it, with that, you put a great big tank out in the back. And yeah, you got to buy the propane, but you can buy a year's worth of propane. And, and getting a tank installed like that, getting it plumbed and all, is not that expensive. And it's the most reliable, dependable, long-term way to provide alternative heating to your home. Especially if you have room to put that big old honking tank out there. Uh, and propane has basically an infinite storage life. It'll last forever. So even if you're bringing in like a wood stove or something uh, that you're going to use for, you know, at night, because it's just cool and all, 
Um, you can still have that propane there as a backup, and you don't even need to use it. Uh, it could just be there. You could buy it and only use it as you need it, or only use it as you really need it, or you know what have you. And if you do kind of the uh, space propane heater plumbed-in solution, you can heat individual rooms uh, at different temperatures instead of using a central system where you kind of keep everything uniform. Just a thought there. Now, uh, coal stoves, wood stoves, pellet stoves. One, if you have access to lots of coal, coal stoves are amazing. Uh, the heat they put out is, is just wonderful. It's almost hard to explain if you've never had a coal stove. Uh, when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, we had a coal stove in the kitchen, and I had to go in every day and empty the ashes and uh, bring more coal in for it. And uh, I actually enjoyed doing it, even on snowy days and, and what whatnot. And I would just throw the ashes down in our driveway, and uh, they would help provide traction. And we'd do that all through the winter. And it was uh, and you know when there was no snow down, we would kind of build them up in a pile and use them as we needed them. We actually called them cinders. I think that's a coal region thing. But we used to say that the cold, the uh, the snow plow truck would come by, plow the snow, and, and spread salt and cinders on the road, which is exactly what they were doing for traction. So that's fine, but you know you can't usually go out and find coal. That's the downside. Wood, there's wood, you know, unless you're in the middle of the desert, there's pretty much sources of wood everywhere. So the most sustainable solution I can see is wood. Pellets I don't like for disaster, right, for long-duration disaster. Short-term, it's easy to store up enough pellets to make it through a short duration. But if you don't have a generator set or backup power of some kind, those stoves generally use electricity uh, to feed the pellets and do some other things, from my understanding. I really don't know a lot about them because as soon as I heard there's any electrical component at all, they are not a solution that I'm looking for. So good old standard wood stoves are probably the best thing you can do for alternative heat. Now, here's the thing with that. I can't give you a lot of brand recommendations because I haven't dug that deep into it yet because it's just, I mean, let's face it, I live in Texas, right? A cold, a cold, cold day for us is, is in the low teens. I mean, that, and that's rare and it's going to warm up that next day. There's actually no temperature here that's going to put us at, you know, jeopardy of life and limb because our power doesn't work. Um, when we had the power outage in Arkansas, it was seven degrees and it was cold, but we weren't in any danger in being inside the house in shelter with blankets. I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. So it's not as high on my priority list as it would be, let's say, if I still lived in Pennsylvania or I lived up in Michigan or I lived somewhere way up in the, you know, the, the, the middle of the United States mountains like Colorado or what have you, uh, where it's actually a severe threat to everything with your home. Um, including the people inside it. Something we're going to do, but again, we're looking more along the lines of bringing propane in, bringing in gas-powered stoves, and we're even thinking about long-term doing a gas refrigerator, but I don't think we're actually going to do that one. But it would be a great long-term backup solution because you're carrying your own power uh, for that. Uh, last but not least, one other thing you can consider doing, and I'm thinking about having one designed, and once I design it, I'll share the design specs, but you'd have to be kind of custom built, or I guess there's standard sizes to fireplaces, but you'd want to have several different sizes of these available. I have uh, kind of in my head plans for a passive um, uh, heat blower insert for a uh, fireplace that will either use no electricity or such little amounts of electricity, you could run it for a full night on a 9-volt battery or something like that with a small fan to help push the air through it, which would basically look kind of like a radiator uh, in the back. 
and have an in input and an output pipe that would draw air through it and expel air. There are uh, systems like that that are kind of turnkey in place, but most of them uh, are kind of bulky, and I have kind of a way to scale it down and make it where it could sit there all the time, and maybe the only thing that you add when you're using it is an extension that, that has the side where the uh, air gets drawn in, and that would push warm air into the room. The problem with fireplaces is they're very inefficient. Most of the heat goes up the chimney. They pull cold air out of the bottom of the room, release some heat up at the top of the room, and that creates a convection in the room, and that warms the room. But what it also does is it draws air out of the other rooms in the house, and Mythbusters even tested this. A fireplace will warm one room, and it, oftentimes it will actually lower the temperature in an adjacent room. So it's because of its inefficiency. So by blowing more heat in, we suppress that. So a fireplace insert would be a low-cost option for those that already have a fireplace, because a fireplace by itself isn't very efficient. Let's go ahead and uh, take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Seven calling from New Hampshire. Um, bad Gustav on the forum. I was wondering if you, I don't think you've talked about, but would maybe be willing to talk about the use of motorcycles in survival situations. Uh, obviously, in a Teotihuacan sort of scenario, they might be very helpful when you have maybe congested roadways or needing some kind of scout vehicle of the sort. But even in energy crisis situations, they're highly fuel efficient, um, they're easily maneuverable. They do obviously have limitations on what they can carry, but a lot of bikes actually have some solutions around uh, some of those things and certainly provide you maybe alternative forms of transportation where large vehicles may not be a, a good idea. So, if you, want you know, to I, I grew up it, riding dirt bikes and, and motorcycles, especially once we moved to PA. And I was kind of in those teenage years, and you know, you could find used dirt bikes for a few hundred bucks, and you know, you mow enough grass in the summer, you can buy a motorcycle and take off and have that freedom before you have a driver's license and a car. It was the best thing you could do, and uh, I loved it. And there is a tremendous advantage. I mean, there's almost nowhere you can't go with a motorcycle that anything with wheels can go. So, in a, like you say, in a, like in a, in, a, in a situation where you got to get somewhere and all the highways are backed up, you can go through medians. You could, I mean, there's almost nothing you can't do to get around something with a motorcycle. And I think it's why you know the mutant zombie biker has become the uh, the enemy of choice in the uh, fan fiction about you know the end of the world as we know it. Uh, because at least they can move, and because they're fuel efficient, and if you can find you know a limited supply of gas, you have a lot of range still with a motorcycle. So. Uh, definitely a good thing. Why don't I own one now? It would be the question you'd ask if you know if you like bikes. Um, I'm definitely afraid of riding a motorcycle on any kind of regular basis in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on this highway system. Uh, I've seen too many people killed on my years of driving. You, know, you guys remember when I was back in the car, 50 miles a day, uh, one way, actually 55, so 110 miles a day round trip. There were times where I made trips that were further for years on end, uh, so I probably have, have logged a half a million miles in Dallas-Fort Worth on, a, on the major highway systems in the past 12 years, maybe 15 years. And I've seen a lot of guys on motorcycles seriously hurt and killed. And four-lane highways, to me anyway, I know people do it, and they do it, and they're safe, and, and they get by with it. But to me, four-lane highways with rush hour traffic as a day-to-day -day commuting device, I don't want anything to do with it. And it's kind of sad. I think when we move to Arkansas, I may get, 
You know, the first thing we actually want for like an all-terrain thing is more of one of the four-wheel things uh, that you, two people can sit in, like the mules uh, for Dorothy and I, just for recreation. But I may get a bike as well uh, for that reason. I really call me sexist or whatever. I don't want my wife riding a motorcycle. I don't. I don't feel safe with that uh, with her at the controls because she has no experience with it, and I just don't. So, and that's the other thing about motorcycles. It requires some specialized knowledge to operate. Um, if I get one. You're going to see me spend some time kind of fooling around with a dirt bike again where I'm away from traffic and I kind of regain the skill set. Because I haven't done this for 20 years, or not 20 years, but I'm not that old yet. Uh, I guess about about 14 years since I've been on a motorcycle. And so that's the other side is you have to have a skill set. There's also unique maintenance requirements. I think it's easier to learn to work on a motorcycle than a car. But just because you know how to work on a car doesn't mean you know how to work on a motorcycle. So if you're going to do your own maintenance, there's a learning curve there as well. But they're inexpensive, especially used dirt bikes and things like that. Let's be honest. We're talking about you know the end of the world as we know it. You're not going to worry about whether you have a license plate or not or whether you're running knobbies and you shouldn't be on the highway. Um, so... There is a tremendous advantage to them. They just have inherent limitations and safety requirements. And I know I'm going to get some people telling me why you shouldn't do this, but I'm going to tell you if you're out on the highway, wear a helmet. I'm also going to tell you that um, I never really was big on wearing helmets on dirt bikes when I was tooling around on them. And the reason was if you were riding in an area where a lot of people were riding motorcycles on some of these back trails and things like that, you often couldn't hear a bike coming in the other direction and you weren't on blind turns able to kind of back off and give the other guy uh, the, the right to pass through and what have you. And my big concern was collision. Technically, I know I probably would have been safer with a helmet and I probably would have been smart to get one of those you know, helmets that don't cover the ears and just cover the top of the head, but those look kind of gay and I was a teenager. and uh, I'm up in the air still about that. Uh, large off-road areas where there's good visibility and wide roads, I'd say wear a helmet. Um, still on some of those small trails. I mean, there's not about trails that are, you know, more along the lines of what you'd see most people using, like, mountain bikes on and things like that, with lots of motorcyclers using them, these kind of, like, old logger roads that have grown back in and things like that uh, up in the uh, in the old mining areas, and it just seemed very dangerous to me. So that's just an aside thought, but great idea, great thought, nothing against them. I just don't want a street bike when I'm living in a major metropolitan area. Uh scares the hell out of me, honestly, from what I've seen on the highway, um, especially the guys on the bullet bikes. Uh, I've seen, more than I care to admit, uh, motorcyclists laid out on the highway, and one or two in some things that, you know, if you would have shown somebody the picture of them uh, and, and, and cropped out the surrounding area, they'd think it was a guy that had been in a war uh, and been hit with a bomb or something like that. So that's, that's one of my concerns. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Greg from Michigan here. I love the show and uh, actively try to get more people involved. I have one comment and one question. My comment is about the member support brigade. I've used my discounts at inthefedcoin.org and shelfreliance.com so far. Both discounts were a great benefit, and I encourage other members to utilize them. Joshua at In the Fed Coin just sent me a message advising he's currently out of coins. He's debating another run because of the current high price of silver, and he's concerned there will not be a demand. I love my coins, and I hope other members will check them out and support the cause. I've also ordered two consolidator pantries from shelfreliance.com. After watching your review, I think with the uh, TSP discount, they're an excellent value. My question relates to specifically to emergency hand crank radios, but can apply to other items. 
I found it difficult to find decent quality items like radios without spending a ton of money. It seems there are very medium quality products anymore. You can either buy a professional unit costing several hundred to several thousand dollars, or you get a piece of junk for 50 to 100 bucks. Do you have any recommendations or advice for some better quality stuff that won't cost thousands? I've watched your uh, video review comparing the Cato Voyager to your Grundig FR200, but reviews on sites like Amazon.com and other vendors show that the quality can vary greatly from customer to customer. I'd rather spend a little more for a decent unit and have something that will last. Thanks for everything you do, and I look forward to the show every day. Well, amen, Greg. Thanks, first of all, for your kind words about the members brigade. I hope everybody that has a membership uses it, and I hope it pays itself back in spades. There's a reason I set it up the way that I did, so that if you were buying things in the prepper industry anyway, um, that by being a member you would at least save your membership every year. And if you did that, there'd be no reason not to stick around, and I'm not taking charity. I'm delivering a product worth more than what you pay. That's smart business. That's what I've tried to do. Um, on your question, I'm sorry I can't say anything other than, man, I love the Grundig. And um, I have two of them. One that was bought years ago and one that was bought maybe a year ago. And both of them perform flawlessly. you got to remember something about reviews online. They're a great place to start. Um, but you also have to take the reviewer into consideration. There are people out there that buy a radio like that, and they think they should be able to crank it like ten times and turn the radio on, and it should play for an hour. And um, if that's the expectation, it's just not going to be met. My experience has been if I crank a Grundig radio for about five minutes, I will get about a good 15 minutes of, uh, of uh, airtime on it. And I'll get another five to ten minutes where it'll play, but it'll start to fade. It just doesn't have a kind of get some static in it like it's out of tune, but it's not. And you pick it up, give it a couple cranks, and it'll run for another minute or two. Um, that's what you're going to get out of any decent uh, hand crank radio. What I like about the Grundig is with the, uh, the the batteries you can put in it anyway, the life of, the, of using the regular batteries in it, the double A's, is that they seem to last for a long time. A tremendously long time. So that you only need to rely on the crank aspect of it if absolutely necessary. But that works well. I used to take, I used to fish a lot, a lot more than I have in the last couple of years. And uh, I'd be out there on the lake all day long. And I had a little thing that I rigged up in my boat, like basically like a little shepherd's hook thing uh, that I could lean rods against. And one of the things I would do is hang that Grundig off of it. And I never bought a battery through entire fishing seasons. I would just sit out there and listen to the radio. And when the fish weren't biting and the radio was starting to fade, I'd pick it up, sit there and crank it for a while instead of cranking the fishing reel. And uh, I used it you know, every day through the summer that one year. And that radio still works. So I can't necessarily say you won't get a lemon. I know when I... Um, whatever the hell that piece of crap was called. What was that? Cato Voyager that I bought to review... Um, I thought it was a piece of crap, and there's people that love theirs. So I might have got a lemon with the Cato Voyager. If you wanted to not spend tons of money and you wanted to have a, a reliable uh, radio system, I would say buy a bunch of batteries and a battery-powered power, battery radio. I mean, that is for the typical week to two weeks without power that is the, on, the, on the long side for most of America going to get you through it. I mean... You know, one giant pack of double A's and one radio, and you put that together, and those double A's are for that radio. And uh, you know, maybe you use them, but you you, you keep rotating them to keep to so make sure you have fresh stored batteries. Um, 
I mean, that's the way to go. And and you're going to be just fine with that. And then something like a Grundig, or God, I hate to admit it, even a Cato, because even as crappy as that thing was, if you cranked it, you could get a station in, and if you kept cranking it, you could keep listening. You just had to do an awful lot of cranking, and it didn't hold a charge worth a damn, and the solar charging didn't worth a damn, and the ability to charge cell phones was pointless. It didn't really work very well. Um, so there was so much wrong with it, I didn't like it. But the Grundig, I love. I also have a... Um, I don't remember who makes it now, but it's a black LED lantern with a radio built into it. That radio is crappy, but it works. Um, I would say the best thing to be reliable, uh, again, is a battery-powered radio with a good reserve pile of batteries. The other thing I really like um, is the uh, PowerDome EX um, backup power uh, system with the inverter built into it, the jump starters and all that we keep in all our vehicles. That has a radio in it, and if you just use the radio portion of it, That thing will go for days when it's fully charged. So, yeah, you do have to plug it in to charge it, but you're going to have a long duration. And if you have multiple solutions, so you have the Power Dome EX for all the other things it does, there's a radio there. You have a radio in your vehicle, so as long as you can let the vehicle run at idle once in a while to recharge the battery, you got a radio there. You've got a backup hand crank radio for, like, a bug-out bag, and you've got a, a battery-powered radio as well. You do that, you've got a lot going on. That's, again, though, why I like the Grundig. Now I collapse it down. I carry backup batteries for the Grundig. And then that way, I don't have to have two of those. And then I still have three sources of information. Just a thought. Um, sorry, I can't tell you. Here's another brand. I've looked at a lot of them. I'm unwilling to pay big dollars for something like this when a small dollar item will do a decent job for me. So I haven't tested any of the more expensive ones. Everything I've tested at a mid-price point... Uh, has either failed to meet or been the same as the Grundig, and I'm stuck on the Grundig because I have two of them, and I've had them for so long. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Uh, wait, one more thing I wanted to talk about with the radios. I have a Puxing, um, what's the model number on it? It's a PX-777 Puxing. Uh, it's, a, it's a small, inexpensive, basically a ham radio. And uh, it also has the ability to pick up weather channels and things like that. Uh, it is not um, something that you know you can crank up to recharge or whatever, but it's a great method of communication and a great method of information. They sell for about 80 bucks, Rob, uh, at uh, MERS Radio, you know, MERS-Radio.com. Our sponsor sells them. He sent me the one I have uh, kind of uh, free just as a, a thank you for all the sponsorship stuff we do for him. And uh, I love it. And I'm not even a ham operator. You say, well, what is a, a non-ham doing with a ham radio? Well, you can turn it on and listen to it anytime you want. Anybody can listen. You just have to have a license to communicate. And uh, if you, you know, you might as well go ahead and get your certification. I guess I'm going to do that eventually. But um, it's still, even if you don't have the time to do that right now, you can pick up a small portable ham radio that you keep on charge all the time. And when everything else is down, the hams will be talking. And you can get information simply by listening to them and then, you know, damn the FCC. If I'm in an emergency and I can get a, a communication out, whether I'm licensed or not, and I need help, I'm going to get the communication out. I'm just not going to get on there on a daily basis because you don't belong on there without certification. Because you don't know what the heck you're doing yet. You don't have a call sign and all that good stuff. Um, but definitely consider maybe small ham radios as another uh, means, not really in the spirit of the question, but still more information uh, when you need it. Let's go ahead and take that next question now. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is Jared out in California. Hey, um, 
the Australian gentleman that called the other day asking about uh, what he should buy, the 17 HMR, the 22 long rifle. Uh, your advice to him is still bid on. However, there's some confusion about the round. I think that you probably know that. But anyway, uh, the 17 HMR is in no way, uh, it's not. It's just not compatible. It's not comparable to the 22 long rifle at all. The one that is comparable to the 22 long rifle is the 17 HM2 or 1700 Mach2. That round is a neck down 22 long rifle case made to fit the 17 caliber bullet. Those two are the ones that are comparable. And the 17 HMR is actually the one that's comparable to the 22 Magnum, the WMR, 22 WMR. And the 17 HMR is just the 22 Magnum neck down to fit the 17 caliber bullet. Anyway, um, I'm sure you knew this, and I just wanted to clear up the confusion. Um, I own all four. All four are great, but when I'm going to go put a bunch of rounds through the gun, I'm not taking the 17 or the Magnum just because they're not economical to shoot, really. They're pretty pricey. Uh, so, anyway, just wanted to clear that up. Thanks, Jack. I mean, yeah, definitely. I don't really have a lot to say to that other than I want to let the listener speak and let him say what he had to say on it. On the uh, on the question uh, with the Australian guy, I didn't bother to go into that because I pretty much feel the same about both of them, that uh, it's an expense issue, and the guy was looking to do a high volume of shooting. And then the other thing is, if you're going to hunt with it, even the, uh, the 17 uh, uh, H, H2 is, uh, they call that 17 Hummer, I think some people call that, uh, that is based on a 22 long rifle, still has that frangible uh, bullet and that high velocity and, you know, does things like turn squirrels inside out. And, and that's kind of cool if you're shooting, like, ground squirrels that you just want to get rid of. But if you want to actually eat something, uh, it's just not good for it. Um, I like the 17, and... Um, Again, I've kicked around the idea of getting one, but when it comes down to it, if I'm going to go out and shoot a lot of shells, like, like this guy said, or if I am going to go out and try to put some meat in the pot, I'm taking the 22 long rifle every time. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Troy in Denton, Texas. Hey, Aaron, nearby. Uh, question for you. One, you seem to have a Texas draw that kind of comes and goes. What's up with that? But the main reason I'm actually calling is uh, you're showing aquaponics. Uh, I posted uh, a comment on your uh, original uh, podcast for that. Uh, just wanted to say that uh, you, you covered uh, media-based aquaponics, which is you know uh, uh, called flood and drain or ebb and flow. It's called many things. But you left out things like deep water culture, which is also called raft aquaponics. Uh, uh, the main difference there being that... Uh, uh, Backyard enthusiasts do the media-based a lot, but commercial systems or, or larger-scale systems, uh, deep water culture is is uh, 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 more common. Uh, a good place to research that is aquaponics.com. Uh, uh, Nelson and Paid Aquaponics, uh, they create systems and stuff, but their website actually has a lot of free education on uh what the differences between those systems are, and uh, even nutrient film technique, which is a third technique, but, uh, really doesn't mm, handle well with, with particulates in the water. So anyway, just uh, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, let's start with the Texas draw. Um, I am a, uh, a constant transplant, I guess is the best way to describe my growing up. I grew up in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, which is... 
as uh, as redneck as any part of the uh, the country if you get out in kind of the outskirts of Jacksonville instead of downtown and uh that's uh that's where I lived in kind of the outskirts and the swampy areas and things like that and grew up running around the swamp and uh, of course moved to Pennsylvania in my early teenage years went to high school up there and all and uh but lived kind of out in the uh, in the sticks as well way out in the sticks there and uh was surrounded by the coal region dialect which uh you know it has its own uniqueness I'll leave it at that and um try to shed that uh because that makes you stand out more than the hick sound and uh also spent a lot of years traveling the northeast into places like Boston and uh Rhode Island Providence New York City uh, Hoboken Newark uh all those areas with their own unique dialect and I I just tend to pick up the way that other people around me are talking then you know when i uh when I was in the army i hung out all with uh, the infantry guys and at the nco club and stuff like that most of those guys were from you know the the, the south and in the in the west you know uh, anywhere from texas to wyoming to alabama and things like that and i guess i just got this mojpaja thing so it's not intentional i don't even think about it and i think what you'll see is sometimes when i'm really irritated and angry i almost sound like i'm from the northeast uh and when i'm really laid back and relaxed and just being myself a little bit of that drawl comes in and the more laid back i get the more of the drawl that comes in i, I can't help it it's just who i am uh as far as the deep water aquaponics never heard of it before um looked it up saw some pictures of it and went yeah i heard of this before but i never really thought about it and i guess it's because it doesn't really work well for the backyard enthusiast but i think from what i've seen about it now if you were looking to go small scale um small scale commercial uh occupying uh, a larger area than a typical backyarder would but yet not even scaling up to full you know typical commercial you might be able to adapt it uh and adapt it quite well uh it's up to you whether you want to you know do that route or do the conventional media based flush and flow uh concept but a lot of great information out there um again I don't have a lot to say on it I just figure I'd let you guys know about it you guys can look it up yourself and uh if anybody's ever adapted a large scale concept you know deep water raft based aquaponics to to bring it down to a smaller scale love to have you on the show for an interview uh in fact let me throw that out right now if anybody's done anything really kind of neat cool different they would like to get on the show for an interview jack at the survivalpodcast.com that's my email address send me an email put interview request in the uh subject line and uh you know hey man i'll uh, i'll see if i can get you on also if you'd like to have me on your show your radio host or something like that or you got a podcast um you know, let me know. I'm I'm happy to go on other shows as well. Uh, it sometimes takes some work to schedule these things, but you know, I'll do it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Yes, my name is Jamie. I'm a listener um, from the Portland, Oregon area, and my question today is: um, distance, willing to drive for a uh, personal bug out location. I am in the market to buy a small piece of land, and I would like to use it, you know, primarily as personal land to take my family camping on and um, maybe, you know, possibly uh, for the future an investment, but to also have a piece of land of my own that I can uh, bug out to if need be. And the land that I am looking at is uh, probably a good five or six hour drive away, and I have a feeling that that's probably a little too long to be driving for a bug out situation, but that is... uh, the land that's in my price range. So I would just like to hear your comments about that. Thank you, and keep up the good work. 
Well, good question, and I think you're on the outer limits of what I generally consider to be good land, especially if it's going to be land you want to use and get to often. Um, the difference between driving six hours to a place and three hours to a place is huge. To me, you, you look at a minimum distance, and I'm not even talking about just for um, bugging out here. I'm talking about minimum distance to get the drop in the land price. You know, what I've found is a lot of people will commute, commute an hour. I mean, an hour is nothing. It's not far enough for a bug out location, but you, the land prices definitely don't drop much. Two hours of land prices start to drop, but you got a lot of affluent people driving those prices up because those are great weekend houses for the affluent and the wealthy. They're also great places to live if you're upper management or business owner that doesn't have to go into the office every day that maybe only goes in two or three days a week. That guy's willing to make that two-hour commute. Well, by the time you get to three hours, the land prices generally start to slide off if you're going in the right direction and there's not another city on the other side. I mean, let's look at it this way. You're in San Antonio, and you go two hours north, and you're starting to get that drop, and what are you picking up? You're picking up the rise in prices from the Austin side of things. So, But if you go west from San Antonio or you go south from San Antonio, um, you, you, you get that drop. You go northeast, you get that drop. You start to go... Um, east from San Antonio, you go far enough, you start to drop and you start to pick back up with the Houston effect. So it always has to do, and that's just because I know Texas geography well because I live here and I've driven those routes forever. But, you know, you always have to look at what's on the other side of that distance. It doesn't do you any good to get away three hours from a, a major city and end up being, you know, only an hour away from another major city. And that's going to affect your land prices. Your distance of five to six hours If it's all you can find and you love the place and you'll make the commitment to get there, that's okay. But you're not going to go as often as four even. Four hours versus six hours is huge. Uh, every time I drive up to Arkansas and I drive through this place called Cooper, and we looked at a place in Cooper. Cooper's about three and a half hours from here. And I've got another two, two and a half hours to drive. Um, I think, man, if we would have bought that place, I'd be there now. And it just seems so easy and so fast. And I think I'd be there three times a month if we had bought that place. Uh, but it wasn't in the cards because of cost and some other things. Uh, I also wanted to be up in the mountains, and there's no mountains near Cooper. There's another thing you have to, and I know I'm going to get some women mad at me here, but I'm going to give you a reality. Um, one of the fundamental differences between men and women, other than what you can see on the outside, is the bladder. Uh, unencumbered by a female bladder, I can drive from my house to my bug out location in under five hours. Uh, four hours and 40 minutes-ish. And that's with traffic and that's with getting through downtown Hot Springs and out the other side and everything else. Because uh, I've driven that drive with zero stops. Straight through. Taking the dog, it's five hours. Encumbered by the female bladder and a couple P-stops, uh, that five hours turns into six to six and a quarter hours. So if you're taking kids and females with you and you're going to go use this for family camping and all, you better be, if that six hours is based on that, fine. If it's based on you doing it by yourself because you went up there to look at it alone, you're going to change your time schedule when you're bringing kids and wives with you. And I know some women's going to write me today and say, I don't do that. And you probably don't and your husband's lucky. Because uh, I found that there's a vast difference in the... Uh, In, in the two, two, two uh, sexes of the species with that one. Um, in fact, I had my, my wife call me the last time I drove up to Arkansas alone, didn't even take the dog, and she said, where are you? Are you, are you in Arkansas yet? I said, I'm here. 
She goes, you're here? I said, honey, unencumbered by your bladder, it's amazing how quick I can travel. But six hours is my outer limit if you want to get there often. Um, and it's gonna, it's not gonna be as often as you think. Let me just put it to you that way. Three to four hours, if you can pull that off, it's an easy trip. Three to four hour trip, you can go out for a day and come home that night. And it's not even that inconvenient. Let's say you were here, get up early, kick yourself in the butt, get out of bed at five, get out the door by 5.30. Again, married folks, we're not gonna really usually pull that off if we're taking the spouse with us, but get out by 5.30, four hours, Well, where are we at? You know, 5.30, 6.30, 7.30, 8.30, 9.30? Call it 10 a.m., we're there. I can do a full day's work till 5 o'clock, be home at 9. That's a long day. It's a tiring day, but I can do it. It's definitely easy to do for an overnighter, one night over, you know, and, and be there until midday and leave at noon and be home by 4. That's easy weekend trip. When you start taking it out to 5 and 6 hours, it just doesn't feel the same, trust me. All right, good question. Uh, don't hesitate to do it, but just understand that it's going to be more work. Uh, that two hours, that four to six right there, that's going to matter. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is John from West Virginia. Uh, got a question concerning beetle bugs. These little ladybug type deals, they uh, show up about this time every year and pretty much infest my home and property. I'm trying to figure out a way to get rid of them or at least send them out. Uh, appreciate the show. Thanks, Mike. Well, no offense there, man, but if people get on my draw, geez, uh, <laughs> I could tell where you're from as soon as I heard you before you even said it, but, uh, that's cool, man. I love West Virginia. Uh, let's, uh, let's, your issue is, uh, one, a lot of us would love to have the problem. Uh, ba uh ladybugs are, you know, completely not going to harm anything, and, uh, they're a great predator of, uh, pest insects. So any kind of garden or something, you're going to want them there, and, um, Some way, shape, or form, what's happening is, is, is you get a mass of ladybugs, uh, moving from being larvae to adults and, uh, going to want to breed and they kind of start swarming. They're ending up somehow in your home. And there's probably a way that they're getting in because I'll tell you what, they don't want to be in there. There's nothing for a ladybug inside a house because they're a carnivore that eats other insects and insects that also don't really want to be in your house because they eat insects that eat vegetation. So they're not going to do any good at killing off a cockroach or something like that that likes to be in a home or a silverfish or something like that. They are a predator for the garden and for the, the forest garden. And great predators at that on things like aphids and, 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 and other insects. So what you've got to do is figure out where they're coming in from. Because if you do something in the house to kill them, it's not going to solve your problem. Because I promise you, they're not being born in your house. They're not breeding in your house. They're, they're being born outside. They're living as larvae outside. They're doing their, their thing as predators as larvae. They're evolving into a beetle. And when they get to that point where they're ready to reproduce and they start clocking, flocking together, um, they're ending up somehow drawn into your home. So there's probably some big opening somewhere that you're not aware of. If you close that off, it'll solve the problem. And there's probably some type of scent or something that they're keying in on and uh, thinking that's where they want to be. Uh, so look for the entry point. And keep them out. And if you know the time of the year, maybe it's a time to do a little less open windows and a little bit more um, using the air conditioner just to keep things closed up. We had it happen once in Arkansas over five years. 
Uh, they were everywhere. They were inside the windows and all. I was going inside and scooping them up, and I was carrying handfuls of ladybugs outside and letting them go. And going, come on, get out there, guys. You don't want to be in here. I'm still not sure where they came in from. I actually think they might have come in from the dryer vent because it was a time where the kids had moved out, and we were we you know we leased it to our our niece and uh, her husband for a while. And um, when they were done leasing it, we pulled the the dryer out of there. And that vent thing was open. I think that might have been where they came in from. So you might want to check, is there any place that makes it easy for them to get in and block that off? And that's good to keep all pests out. Uh, but they are coming in after they're born. They're not reproducing in your house and then hatching out. If they did, they would hatch out of these little freaky-looking... A ladybug larva looks like some kind of sci-fi worm, like the thing, uh, like a miniature version of that thing in, in the Star Trek movie. They put in that dude's ear. I mean, they are an evil-looking little thing, but you if they hatched out in your house, they have nothing to eat. They would die. So they're hatching outside and coming in. That's the big thing to key in on. And uh, count your blessings, honestly, man, because uh, if you're doing any kind of gardening, scoop them things up and, and take them out. They can't hurt you. They won't bite. They won't eat anything in your home. Uh, they're just kind of an, a hindrance and an annoyance. Let's take another call. Real quick, in fact, one more thing. My local garden center sells them in little, like little buttercup size cups. I think there's about a hundred in there, and they sell them for like eight dollars uh, with a little bit of stuff in there for them to eat and all. Because the, the adult beetles will eat some things other than insects, and uh, people buy them. So you might be able to find a local nursery or something, and maybe you just go around, scoop them up, put them in cups, take them down there on consignment, and sell them because people are buying them. People are buying them like crazy to establish them in their little ecosystems. Now let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Jake in Chicago. I just can't thank you enough for uh, what you've done for me in my life. Uh, uh, in my career, uh, I'm a doctor and uh, uh, used to be a trader and still trade the markets right now. I'm very disturbed by what I'm seeing. Uh, now thanks to you, I'm a survivalist and prepper, and uh, I can't tell you how you've changed my life and those around me uh, in helping educate them, so thank you. Um, the main question right now is, uh, as I dive deeper into research and prepping, it's pretty hard not to come across uh, a lot of the misconceptions and lies that our government puts upon us, uh, how the markets are manipulated and really how very little in control we really truly are, at least seemingly at times. And uh tends to draw you towards uh, the Bilderberg group and all of the craziness that you see on the internet and um, the things that make you wonder what's going on and who's really in control and where we're going with all of this. So um, we'd really just love to hear your opinions on, on, on this group and, um, and what you think they're doing and what's going on and if it's all conspiracy or if there's some truth to it. Sure, it's a bit of both, but uh, as always, love to hear your opinions on things, and would certainly love to hear yours on this. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the great work. Oh, the Bilderbergs, the conspiracy that's not a conspiracy, it's just reality. Um, and I guess that, it, it, I don't really know that I like the term conspiracy anymore, because uh, somebody pointed out to me once, the conspiracy does not necessarily mean something that's true, and that, you know, people go to jail for things like conspiracy to commit murder every day. It's just a agreement between two people. We use it in the conspiracy theory sense, though. We're talking about the wide, you know, held beliefs that some kind of nefarious thing's going on where the general public doesn't really know. The, the mass conspiracy, I guess, is a better term. Bilderberg is not even a mass conspiracy anymore. It's widely known, out in the open, Uh, you can find out all about it by going online and looking into it. I do think some of the uh, the woo out there people have taken a little further than it is. 
I do think the purpose of Bilderberg is to steer global events toward the desired effect for the people that are involved. I do think it is trying to run the world. The key word there, though, is trying. I don't think people go into Bilderberg and say, over the next year we're going to do this, and they tick the boxes off and tick the how boxes off, and then every year exactly what they want comes to be. I think that's when we've gone too far. I think they do set agendas. I think they do decide things like, who are we going to back for President of the United States? And when people with the kind of money and power do that, they have a great influence. That doesn't mean they always get what they want, but I think they do select presidents. I think I, people are going to think I'm crazy till it happens. I've been saying it for two years. Your next president is Rick Perry, my governor, and I ain't happy about it. And I think it's that that group has decided that this is the guy they're going to bring in behind the clown Obama. And it's a perfect way to sell a guy like Perry. And I think you know, he was put up there so they could do it. And they let him do, you know, they, when they put somebody in like that, they don't decide when they're going to take him down, whether he's going to be a one-term or a two-term. They wait till he does that for himself, and then they put the next person in. I think that's one of the big things they do. And you might think Jack's gone off in conspiracy wrong, but you got to understand the power and the level and the money of these people that get together. And if you go online and look, you can find rosters of the people that go to this meeting called the Bilderbergs, and uh, they have them different places every year. I uh, started at the Bilderberg Hotel, which is where this name came from. Um, we're talking about people like Maurice Strong goes to Bilderberg. Maurice Strong is the real force behind the global warming scam. Um, he was the original force behind the global cooling scam when it was launched as the Green Movement in the late 70s. Look up Maurice Strong. You'll find out the guy is an oil millionaire. Actually, he's an, I think he's an oil billionaire. He made his billions in oil. He's in China right now helping the Chinese learn how to trade carbon credits, but he's supposedly concerned about global warming. This guy makes, Al, Al Gore is a mouthpiece for the movement. Maurice Strong is a force behind it. He goes to Bilderberg's just about every year. This is about a hundred odd, you know, 130 I think is the number officially released of the most influential and powerful people in the world. They get together and it's not a secret that they meet anymore. It used to be denied. Oh, there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. And then, you know, years ago they go, oh yeah, well it kind of exists because we've been caught now. Too many people know. So, yeah, we exist, we get together, we discuss world affairs, we want our peace and our privacy. It's not a secret meeting, but what happens inside it is not for public release. Folks, when 130 of the most powerful people in the world get together and meet in, in public, private, in other words, they, you know they're there, but you can't go in, there's no, no notes are released, nothing is said, there's no public statements, the media is not allowed in. When those kind of people get together once a year for a big meeting, they don't play freaking canasta. I mean, that's all I could say. They are making choices about what they're going to do, and I do think they orchestrate things like subprime cr crashes led by liars' loans and short hedge markets and things like that. Now, do they pull levers and make everything just happen? Absolutely not. When we, when we take conspiracy to that level, we take these, these new world order things, let's call them what they are, to that level, we're giving those people too much credit and we're giving them too much power and we're seeing them as more competent than they are. But they do exert a huge amount of influence over world affairs. Um, and I would love someday for the, the group to be successfully infiltrated and for the information they actually talk about to get released. And I think sooner or later it's going to happen. And I think that the general sheeple public that doesn't pay any attention to this crap is going to be shocked 
at how much manipulation and how much flat-out evil comes out of a group like this. And I think the the the, the, the super conspiracy theorist that, that wears the foil hat every day is going to be like, oh, it's nowhere near to the level I expected, but I think that medium in between is going to be an eye-opening for both sides. And sooner or later, somebody's going to find out what these people are doing. And um, I, I can't wait for the day that that actually happens. I can't wait for the day that somebody successfully installs cameras and recorders and gets away with it and brings out even one. Because what they do is they break into subcommittees. We know this much about the structure. Each committee discusses an issue, what's going to be done, what they're going to do to influence it, what they want as a result of it. And then all the committees come back at the end and discuss with the entire group uh, their solutions, and they, there's a consensus built, and then everybody goes back to a little power broker area to try to make things happen over the next year. That's how we understand those meetings to work today. If you think I've gone off the deep end, if you think this is all nut job talk, go to Google, search Bilderberg, and start. go look at the Wikipedia article on it alone. Um, you go do some research into this, and you go get the actual information that we that we have gained over time. And uh, this is a place I'll give props to Alex Jones. He will keep going. He'll keep going out in outer space. And they're going to wind you up. They're going to put you in a FEMA camp. They're going to kill you, right? He'll go there. But right up until he goes there, no one has done more to bring light on this group than Alex Jones. So if you want to see some of the stuff about Bilderberg that's factual and right on, um, go check out some of what he's done. Uh, one of the best things that you could watch by him uh, and it'll go a little bit too far, but not really. I mean, this is actually one of the best documentaries I've seen done, and a lot of stuff about Bilderbergers on it. Uh, go ahead and check out, uh, you can watch it on YouTube for free, Fall of the Republic, which is a, a, a documentary that Jones put together. Very, very well done, and I'd say 95% dead on. All right, so those of you that don't think I like Alex, you know, I do. I just think that when he starts saying, they're going to line you up and kill you and murder you. Okay, now we've gone off the deep end because we want to sell something. Or I, or maybe he really believes it. I don't know. But I love the guy right up till that that guy comes out. And then I just think, huh, you know, maybe he spends too much time in it and I don't know what it is. But don't assign too much power to these groups. Understand you're the one with the real power. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, what's going on, Jack? It's Chris from uh, Tampa, Florida. Uh, I got a problem with some squirrels. They're eating everything I plant, just about, except for uh, peas and, and beans, it seems. Uh, any kind of green or uh, even sunflowers in the summer, they were just munching down on them. Uh, let me know what what, uh, what I can do other than setting up a squirrel blind for the day and camping out. Thanks. Bye. I saved myself an easy one for the end today. Actually, it just came in in that order, but I was like, man, that's a great place to end the show because it's easy. Um Squirrels in the garden. Uh, number one way I keep squirrels out of my garden is right now I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, six of them. I talk about them outside of my window all the time. This is feeding time for them uh, early in the morning, uh, and the seeds were just put out there. I feed them black oil sunflowers. And I have these great, big, fat, beautiful squirrels that sit in my backyard that are an emergency protein source with a gamo pellet gun anytime I want them. But I don't usually I talk about shooting them, but... Uh, I've shot very few of them over the years, but they're there. They're available should we actually need to depend on an emergency protein source and they're conditioned to come here. They pretty much stay out of my garden. 
I did have a problem with them in the peach tree for a while, uh, but they've even seemed to like kind of forgot about the peaches, even when they're nice and ripe and on the tree. Uh, it was only the first few years that they seemed to have an affinity for them. I, I don't know why that changed, but the garden was never a problem since I started feeding them. And what I've noticed is right now I have a white oak tree, and squirrels love white acorn oaks. And there is a pile of white acorn oak, uh, white, white oak acorns, um, about six inches deep under that tree. They walk across the acorns to get to the sunflower seeds. And, um, that tells you how much they like black oil sunflower. So if they have something to eat that they like, they'll probably stay out of the garden. So that's the easy way to set up some feeders with black oil sunflower. And if you go to like, uh, I get mine from Tractor Supply. I get 50 pound bags for like 12 bucks. And that lasts quite a while. Uh, and it's less expensive than some kind of, you know, other, alarm or some kind of solution in the garden uh, to try to keep them out. There is the other side. Right now I do have problems with them. And I don't have problems with them eating the food in the garden. I have them problems with them burying food in the garden because they're getting ready for winter. So when they get done gorging themselves on the black oil sunflower, they go start grabbing the, the, the white oak acorn and the red oak acorns that are around here from all these oak trees. And then they take those acorns and they bury them. <clears throat> and where do they bury them? They bury them in my flower pots and they bury them in my garden. So not only do I have little trees growing because I forget about them, um, later in the spring that I have to, you know, get out of there that have a tap root, tap root that's a foot deep in the freaking garden by the time the little tree's coming up. Um, they often will kill young plants because they don't care that there's a little green there or something. They'll dig it right out of the ground. So that's about the only, this time of year is the only time I have an issue with them. When I see them leave the seeds, I put Max in the backyard and he spends the rest of the day hating squirrels. So a dog is another good solution if you have that option. Uh, but I think your best solution is feed them. I know that sounds crazy. You're going to bring more of them in. Um, your other solution is uh, they are a very redundant species. Completely eliminating them is all but impossible. And they are succulent when simmered slowly on the stove for about two hours in a great big pot with celery, carrot, and onion and some homemade gravy. And they are delicious that way. And I'm looking at one right now as he eats the seed, looking at my darked-out window and wondering what that little sound is emanating from beyond the window as he eats the seed and thinking, yeah, he'd be pretty good in that flower or in that stew pot. So when all else fails, elimination. And um, don't ever feel bad for squirrel elimination. There's plenty of them out there. They breed like what they are. Bushy-tailed rats that live in the trees, they taste really, really good. And uh, definitely something you can uh, you can make as a protein source. But some other things if you want to keep them away. I've heard of hanging up um, those little spinny things, you know, like they look like a, like a spiral, uh, flashy in the garden. But we've got them in the little, uh, like, rock flower garden right by where we have the feeders. And I've seen them. I, 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 they don't seem to care. They don't seem to, I, that might work with a wild squirrel that's afraid of movement and stuff. But once they're in a suburban area, uh, even a, even a you know a rural area with a lot of houses around and stuff like that, they become accustomed to people. Little movements and like that don't scare them. Uh, I know people have put rubber snakes and all. I've never seen that work. Uh, owls, you know, it's like it works until they realize, hey, that's a plastic owl that never moves. Uh, so I think your best bet is feeders on the other side of your property. Uh, with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up today. It's been a great show. I will be doing another call-in show tomorrow. If you called in around three weeks to four weeks ago, uh, you might hear your call on tomorrow's show. 
Uh, also, reminder that we are doing the other giveaway with the Cobra Rigger belts from SOE Tactical Gear tomorrow. If you want on Tuesday, you'll hear from me sometime today how to claim your Cobra Rigger belt. Basically, you're going to order it from the site with a special code, and then John will ship it to you without billing you for it. Um, I also want to say thank you once again to everybody that calls into the show, uh, that shares the show, that does things to, uh, to make sure other people hear about the Survival Podcast. I feel like the work we're doing here is important. The work we're doing, not just me, but you uh, together with me as a community on the forum, on the blog, commenting on uh, the social media space, getting the word out there that preparedness is not for the insane. It is actually the insane who failed to prepare. It doesn't make any damn sense in the world that we live in to be unprepared for life to go awry. Um, anybody that's lived through the past three years that still thinks preparedness is foolish In my view, I hate to put it this way, they're a damn fool. How could you watch this country go from one of its greatest periods of prosperity to such damage in such a short time and realize that we are nowhere near as bad as it could be and that there's a lot of indicators that could get worse and still say preparedness is foolish? Whether it's monetary, whether it's natural disaster, whether it is I'm wrong and the government conspiracies and the New World Order conspiracies are bigger than even I think they are, and that becomes the problem, it doesn't matter what it is. We do know the future will revolve around one thing, and that one thing is change. And change will always come. And sometimes change is good and sometimes change is bad. But the people that either prosper from change or get by when change comes, regardless of severity or what direction the pendulum swings, are the people that are are prepared. So make sure that you're prepared. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for